John 12. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 19. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, truly we do proclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Even this morning as we have looked back to the Old Testament and we've seen what has been promised, what has been prophesied, what has been looked forward to. As we have proclaimed in song thankfulness for Jesus Christ. Son of God, sent by the Father to save us from our sins, even as we will see this morning in our passage, the King who has come. Truly, Father, our desire is that you would be lifted up, that your praises would fill not just this building, but the sky. How can we keep silent? Father, we pray, even now, as we turn our attention to your word, that your spirit would work through your word in each and every one of our lives, that you would challenge us, that you'd confront us, that you would change us for your glory. I pray that you would give me boldness to proclaim the truth of your word with clarity and with authority. you would be honored in this time. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. John 12, verses 12 to 19. It's a well-known passage, is it not? The triumphal entry. And sometimes it's difficult as you come to well-known passages to, to back up and to approach it with excitement. To see what is really going on. This is the Word of God. And the Word of God is profitable. I received an email this week from an individual. And it's not, it's not odd or that unusual as a pastor to get random emails and phone calls from people asking for prayer requests. This one was a little bit different. It came from an individual in Altoona, Pennsylvania. It wasn't just the request. It was, it was, it was where it came from. And this individual explained that they'd, they'd found us online and after reading our doctrinal statement, they liked what we believed. And he went on, they went on to ask for prayer. And I'm happy to pray for them. To anyone else who reaches out to me. But it did strike me as a little funny. I don't know if this individual didn't know that we were in Altoona, Iowa, instead of Altoona, Pennsylvania, or if they were just looking for churches in their area and came across us and they did realize it. Whatever the case, it reminded me of a humorous interaction that I had about six years ago when my wife and I first moved to Altoona, Iowa. Six years ago, as we moved here to the area, we, it was all kind of... Quickly, it happened so fast. And so we didn't have time to find a house before we got here. 
So we got here, the Wilsons graciously gave us a place to stay for a few months while we found a house. And so we looked and uh, we settled in the area, we finally found a house and we moved in and, and part of the things that I had to get done was I had to get our, our water and our utility set up. And so what I did is I googled Altoona water, I found a number and I called it. We talked, and I gave the nice lady our, our new address and other information that she needed. And in the course of this conversation, she paused, and she said, I'm, I'm having trouble finding that address. I figured it was probably my mistake, because we you know, had just moved to the house. Chances are I'd got the address wrong, missed up a number or something. So I, I checked with Krista, and yeah, I got the address right. This is the address again, 705. And again, this, I'm sorry, this street doesn't exist in Altoona. Well, now I'm getting worried. I, I know this street exists. I, I just bought a house there. It better exist. In fact, I just left there. I know it exists. I was confused. I was somewhat frustrated, and I explained that it did exist, and I gave it to her once again, 705 6th Street Southeast, Altoona, Iowa, 50009. That's when she realized that I was indeed wrong. <laughs> I wasn't wrong because I had the wrong address. I was wrong because I'd called the wrong Altoona. I had called Altoona, Pennsylvania. And they couldn't turn on my water. It took us several frustrating minutes during that conversation to figure out what was going on. Because we were using the exact same language. We were both talking about Altoona. But these two Altoonas couldn't be further apart. We were using the same word. We were talking about two different cities. And this morning as we come to John 12, verses 12 to 19, we come to a similar situation. See, as we focus on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, we'll see a crowd who desires a king. And here we see Jesus coming, who is a king. But what the people want and who Jesus is are two very different things. This is the beginning of the end. John 12, 12 to 50. Now really, you could almost start in, in, in the beginning of John 12 with Mary as she prepares Jesus. She anoints Jesus, even unknowingly, for death. But these passages all signal the coming, inevitable end. And this morning we'll look at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And then in the coming weeks, Lord willing, we'll see Gentiles who come, who seek Jesus. And they lead to a discourse on Israel's rejection of her king. So this morning here in the triumphal entry, we'll see a crowd who needs a king and who needs a salvation. And they are crying out for a king and for salvation. The salvation that they desire is very different from the salvation that they need. Jesus does not bring salvation from political oppression. Jesus brings salvation from sin. And this morning as we work our way through this passage, we'll see a ready crowd, a willing king, and a growing divide. The first thing that we see is a ready crowd. 
a crowd who is teeming, who is ready, who is excited. As I mentioned last week in the first 11 verses of John, we found ourselves at a dinner party in Bethany. A very interesting dinner party as you have Jesus, the resurrector, and Lazarus, the resurrected, reclining around this table together. We saw a remarkable show of faith as Mary anoints Jesus, unknowingly preparing him for what lies ahead. It doesn't end there, however. Upon hearing of Jesus' presence in Bethany, we're told that a large crowd, a great many Jews, came to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. And praise the Lord that seeing many of them believed. As the chapter moves forward into verse 12, the next day a great multitude had come to the feast. You could almost feel the tension in the air. Have you ever been in a situation where the tension is just so thick, you feel like you could cut it with a knife? As I read this passage, that's how I feel. How heavy is the situation? How tense is the air? Something big is happening. The time is right. Jesus has shown his power not just over creation, not just over sickness, but over death itself. The crowds are excited. They are building. Excitement is growing. Jesus and his disciples are so close to Jerusalem and the crowds seem to be moving onto his side. News of Lazarus' resurrection is spreading like wildfire and expectations are running wild. Lazarus' resurrection has emboldened both Jesus' followers and Jesus' enemies. The tension is high, and John 12, 12 brings us to the next day. It is the day after the Jews had flocked to Bethany. It is the Sunday of Passover. And John tells us here that on this day, a great multitude that had come to the feast run out to meet Jesus and are waiting for him. I don't think that we should skip over those two words, a great multitude. Just imagine how immense the crowds of Jerusalem must have been on the Sunday before Passover. As people from all over Israel and all over the world flock into Jerusalem. And that, in fact, that adds to the tension of this moment. It's not just Jesus' relationship with the leaders. It's not just what Jesus has claimed. It is just the crowds that make this so much more tense. It's the vast amount of people that are involved. We understand this, do we not? We've seen all summer long, and even this very week, how quickly a crowd can get out of control. How quickly it can boil over into chaos. Josephus reported that at a Passover during his lifetime, the crowds in Jerusalem swelled to over 2.5 million people. Even if, even if, as is probably likely, Josephus is overestimating the size of the crowd then, it's still safe to assume 
that Jerusalem during Passover would swell to two, three, maybe even four times its normal population. Just imagine how that would affect a city. Imagine, if you will, with me, Des Moines. We had the NCAA tournament several years ago. People came from all over. And there was only 16,000 people at each game. Imagine if the city of Des Moines tripled in size in a week. The tension, the chaos that would bring as people spill out of the city onto the countryside and the surrounding cities. You add those crowds to what else is going on. The tension is Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. The excitement for Jesus is building. And it's no surprise to us, just a few verses earlier, at the end of John 11, verses 55 to 57, already there, the people are looking for Jesus. They are wondering, will he come to Jerusalem? Will he come to the feast? And so as Jesus begins his journey towards Jerusalem, John tells us the news of his coming goes before him and the crowds begin to gather. This great multitude had come for the feast. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. John tells us here that these crowds don't come empty-handed. We take branches of palm trees to welcome Jesus. Date palms were readily available in Judea. In fact, as, as Iowa is known for corn, Judea, in a sense, was known for date palms. In fact, they were so abundant, they had become somewhat of a national symbol. D.A. Carson notes that about two centuries earlier, when Simon the Maccabees drove the Syrian forces out of Jerusalem citadel, he was celebrated with music and the waving of palm branches. Around that same time, as this temple was rededicated during uh, the Maccabean era, palm branches were used during the celebration. In fact, later, even beyond the time where we find ourselves in this passage, during the Jewish wars with Rome, A.D. 66 to 70, palm branches would be used on coins by Jewish rebels to identify themselves. The palm branch is a statement. It means something. And using these palm branches, this multitude is not just being expedient. It's not just that they're on their way out there and, and we have nothing else to fill our hands with. Let's take these palm branches. It's purposeful. These people are making a statement. As we welcome the military by waving little American flags, so they are welcoming Jesus with the waving of palm branches. In this act, they are expressing their nationalistic hopes in Jesus. They see Jesus as a political savior. They see Jesus as someone who will deliver them from the oppression of Rome. Unless you say, well, that seems like quite a stretch. 
from just the type of plant that they're waving. It's, it's a lot to get from that. We're not left to guess at this merely by the use of palm branches. Rather, John records for us not just what they are doing, but exactly what they are proclaiming. Look what they say. As they wave these palm branches, they are proclaiming, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel! Hosanna! It's a shout of praise that literally means save now! Save us now! The crowd, the crowd here is referencing Psalm 118, specifically verses 25 and 26. Verse 25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Deliver us. It's a psalm that would have been on their minds anyway, as it is a psalm that is specifically used at Passover. The next verse, verse 26, they use here as well. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a phrase that would have been used, that would have been sung, that would have been proclaimed to welcome and bless pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem. But this here crowd tells us that they mean something more with these words. They see Jesus not just as any Jew coming in the name of the Lord. This is not a normal welcome for Jews coming to Passover. They see him as a very special Jew. Someone who would come specifically in the name of the Lord. They see Jesus as their Messiah. That's what they are saying here. They are proclaiming that Jesus is the one that they have looked for, that they have longed for. He is their Messiah. And this is significant. The people view Jesus as their Messiah. They are welcoming him into Jerusalem with open arms. They are calling on him to save them now. This is triumphant indeed, is it not? This is what the prophets have looked forward to, what the people have longed for. Is this not why Jesus came? But it's here that unfortunately we have to pause. Because while this crowd is right about who Jesus is, they are wrong about why he has come. They are right, Jesus is their Messiah. But the problem is that they see their greatest enemy as Rome and their greatest need as salvation from oppression. They don't see themselves as sinners. They don't need salvation from sin. Their greatest need is salvation from Rome. But indeed, their greatest enemy is sin and their greatest need is salvation from sin. The problem is that they are ready to accept Jesus, but they are only ready to accept Jesus on their terms. In fact, if you're paying attention, this might catch your mind and, and harken back to John 6. Do you remember in John 6, verses 14 to 15, after Jesus has fed the 5,000, this massive crowd, after he has fed them, how do the people respond? Do you remember? 
They say, truly, this is the prophet. And then it goes on to say that they are ready to rush to take Jesus and to force him to be their king. Jesus doesn't accept it at that time. He slips away. Because although that crowd, just like this crowd, is right about who Jesus is, they are wrong about why he has come. Jesus is the king. He is the son of God. He is their Messiah that they have longed for. But Jesus did not come to fill their bellies. Jesus did not come to heal their sick. He did not come to topple their government. Jesus came to give life and to give life more abundantly. He came to save them from their sins. Jesus didn't come to fulfill their desires, to meet their expectations. See, the problem here is not that they are not willing to accept Jesus. That's what they're displaying here. We are willing to accept you. In fact, we want to accept you. Save us. They're waving palm branches. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The problem is that they are not willing to set aside their expectations and to set, accept Jesus as he is. They want Jesus on their terms. Or, as we will see within a week of this encounter, they don't want him at all. The problem is not with the words that they are using. They're crying for Jesus to save them. They're recognizing that he is the rightful king. He is the one who's been longed for, who's been looked for, who's been prophesied of. They're using the right words, but they mean something completely different than the truth. That's a challenge for you and I as well, because the message of the gospel has not changed. You, like the crowd here in John 12, you and I must accept Jesus as he is, not as we wish he were, not as we want him to be. Jesus didn't come to make your life easier. He didn't come to save you from difficulty or pain. He didn't come to make you rich or to make your life comfortable. Jesus didn't come to give you health or wealth. He came to save you from your sins. He's the Son of God who took on flesh to die, to rise again, to conquer death, to give you life. Jesus offers salvation. Brothers and sisters, if you are only willing to accept a Jesus who meets your expectations, then you're not willing to accept Jesus at all. If you're only willing to accept a Jesus who will take away your addiction or fix your relationship or your financial problems, then you don't want Jesus. If you get this wrong, you get everything wrong. If your hope is in a Savior who will make you rich, you're going to be let down very quickly. 
The Christian life is going to be extremely difficult for you. If your hope is in a Savior who will make your life easy, your life is going to be very frustrating and very difficult. Because Jesus didn't come to give you those things. He came to give you life, to give you life more abundantly. He came to save you from your sins. Jesus is not a genie. He's a Savior. And He offers salvation by faith alone. We must not just say the right things. We must mean the right things. So here we see a ready crowd. They are ready. They are excited. They want to accept Jesus, but they only want to accept Him on their terms. Next thing we see is a willing king, verses 14 to 16. A willing king. How does Jesus respond to this? And the answer, as we will see, is humbly. You see, if they were right, if Jesus had come to save them from Rome, to liberate them, he could have come on this triumphal entry, he could have come in on a war horse. I mean, just imagine the scene as Jesus rides in on a strong, a beautiful horse, his disciples beside them, beside him. Imagine as, as he comes in as a conquering king, the spark of revolution that is fanned into flame as the crowds rally behind him and charge into Jerusalem. It could have happened right now, right here. But that's not what Jesus does. Look at verse 14. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting not on a war horse, on a donkey's colt. Just as the crowd is making a bold statement with their shouts of Hosanna and their palm branches, so here Jesus is making a statement with this donkey. By coming on a lowly donkey rather than on a war horse, Jesus tempers their expectations. He's trying to catch their attention. He's calming them down. He's calling them to see him as he is, not as they want him to be. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Notice the similar language between what the crowd is crying for and what Jesus offers. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Verse 15, what is this prophecy that is fulfilled? Behold, your King is coming. They are crying for a king, and here their king comes. They're using the same word, but they mean very different things. We've already seen in verse 13 that the crowd is looking for Jesus as a king who will bring immediate political freedom. But Jesus comes as a humble king. One who must die for their sins.
It is not that Jesus is not willing to save them. It is not that they are wrong about who Jesus is. But if Jesus is going to save them, they must accept him. Verse 16 goes on to say, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. I find that to be a fascinating verse. How many times in our life have we missed something? Right? You're in a moment and you don't realize the significance of the moment you are in until you look back on it later. There's many times in my life as I look back at that. It's not here that the disciples don't know who Jesus is. They know and for the most part they believe. But at the moment they don't recognize exactly what is going on. They don't put it all together in their mind as they're in this moment. It was only after Jesus' resurrection and ascension that they look back and they grasp the significance of what is happening here, the significance of Jesus' triumphal entry. And they marvel. In fact, this made such a huge impact on them as they look back. And that's evident because it is one of the few incidents that's recorded in all four Gospels. Every single Gospel writer records this incident, the triumphal entry. What a conversation that must have been as they sat there, as they looked back, as they realized what this means. What was really going on here? Jesus here is not trying to trick the crowd. He's not trying to take advantage of them. His teaching has not changed from the beginning. Even here, as they would readily make him king, he shows them who he is as he rides into Jerusalem on a humble donkey. They must look past their skewed expectations and be willing to accept Jesus as he is. They must be willing to accept him as a savior. He is willing and ready to save them if they are willing and ready to believe. As you go on to verses 17 to 19, we see a growing divide. In these last few verses, we see three groups of people. Those who had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus at Bethany. Those who had heard about the resurrection of Lazarus at Bethany. And the Pharisees. This section gives a little bit of background. It explains how we find ourselves in this situation where we find ourselves. It explains how Lazarus' resurrection is the catalyst for the triumphal entry. Therefore, verse 17, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. First group of people that we meet are those who had witnessed Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus. And notice how they're described here. They're described as those who bore witness. Those who had witnessed Lazarus' resurrection could not keep quiet about Lazarus' resurrection. They go and they bear witness about it. In fact, it is their enthusiasm in the story that they tell that brings the second group. Those who did not witness, but who heard. Even here at the triumphal entry, we see the effectiveness of those who had witnessed and displayed 
uh, is displayed in the size of the crowd that welcomes Jesus. This message had gotten around. People had heard. As they go and tell, others come and see. And those who have seen cannot keep quiet. And those who have heard cannot stay away. I don't think we can help as you look at this passage and not see parallels to evangelism. Is this not simply what evangelism is? Telling people about Jesus? Telling people what I have seen and bringing them to Jesus? Oh, that you and I would have the fervor of those who had witnessed Lazarus' resurrection to go and to tell people about who Jesus is and what he has done. What you and I have experienced in Christ is no less amazing than what Lazarus experienced in the tomb. And yet we must ask ourselves, could we be described as those who bear witness? I guarantee you that these witnesses did not speak of Lazarus' resurrection simply out of a sense of duty or guilt. They did not have to gather before they went out and train each other. What are we going to say about Lazarus' resurrection? How are we going to make this effective? They didn't have to plan it ahead or have time to think through what they were going to say. They simply went and told people about Jesus. They could not help but to go and to tell. As those who know Jesus, we have been brought from death to life and life more abundant in Christ. And we must ask ourselves, what is it that keeps us from boldly proclaiming the truth? What is it that causes us to hold our tongue? Do we not understand what Christ has done for us? Is that the problem? Is it that we don't love the world around us? That we just don't love people? We don't care? Why is it that we hold our tongue? May we be a people who go and make disciples. May we be a people who bear witness. Finally, in this section, we see another group of people, those who were there that day, and it's the Pharisees. It would be almost a humorous passage if it were not so sad. The Pharisees here are talking among themselves. They are accusing each other. They're arguing. They're calling each other's out. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. My mind, and maybe I shouldn't use this illustration because there might be a large portion of the congregation that won't get this, congregation, this illustration, but there's a meme on, that I've seen online. Do you guys know what a meme is? There's a meme where there's two Spider-Mans and they look exactly like each other and they're pointing at each other. And the point is, they're accusing each other. They're saying the same thing. They're realizing that they look exactly the same. That's where my mind went when I read this. As the Pharisees are sitting here, and they're, they're sitting around, and, and they say to each other, 
You see that you are accomplishing nothing. And the same guy is pointing his finger back at him. You are accomplishing nothing. None of us are accomplishing anything. We have these plans. We've challenged Jesus publicly. We've threatened him. They've tried everything that they can think of to keep Jesus quiet. And yet for all of their schemes and threats, Jesus will not stay quiet. And his popularity continues to grow to the point that now comes Passover. And they see this massive crowd welcoming him into Jerusalem. Their exasperation is seen not only in their turning on each other, but in their exaggeration. Not only have we failed to silence him, but now the whole world is going after him. Everyone is following him. Obviously, this is exaggeration. It's like the kid who says, everyone, my whole class, I'm the only one. Look, the world has gone after him. As we've come to know John, as we've worked through the book of John, we've seen that John loves irony, does he not? There's irony all through the book of John. And there's irony here. In fact, we don't necessarily see it, but um, if you go, in fact, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read 19 into 20 and 21. Just listen to this. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The very next verse. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The Pharisees are exclaiming as the whole city is turning to fall. The whole world has followed him. And what's the next verse say? And then some Greeks came. Some Greeks. Some Gentiles. There's irony here as John is using this exaggeration to transfer and transition to the next passage. As these Greeks come, and these Greeks then give the clue that the time has come, the time is right. The Jews have rejected their Savior. In these verses, not only is John moving the story forward, he's highlighting both the growing interest in Jesus and the growing hate toward Jesus. The crowd's excitement only serves to fuel the Pharisees' hate. As we come to the end of these verses this morning, we see that the multitude who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem was right in what they said. But like Caiaphas and Mary before them, they say more than they meant to say or they even understand that they are saying. They don't even realize how right they are in what they say, but how wrong they are in what they mean. The people thought that in this triumphant entry, they were, in, they were welcoming a king who would conquer Rome. Instead, they welcomed a king who would conquer a much greater enemy. Sin and death. In the sad reality of the triumphal entry, and we back up for a second. The sad reality of the triumphal entry, even as we see in a passage like Zechariah 9, the sad reality is that if they would have been willing to accept Jesus as Savior, 
that they would have gotten him a king as well as he would have ushered in his kingdom. But they're not willing to have him as Savior. They want him on their terms or they don't want him at all. And so they reject him. The other Gospels give much more detail accounts of the triumphal entry. John here is focused mostly on the crowds as he contrasts their expectations with the reality of who Jesus is and what he is doing. John presents Jesus as the Son of God in the hope that in seeing that we might believe. Jesus is the Word made flesh. And he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And the question that we must ask ourselves this question this morning is, will we receive him? Are you willing to receive Jesus not as you want him to be, but as he is? Jesus is not a genie. He's not here to fix your problems, to meet your desires. He's here to meet your greatest need. The fact that you are a sinner and that your sin separates you from God. And he died for your sins. He died to give you life. He is a conquering king. He's conquered death. He's conquered sin. And he offers us life. So if you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, maybe you've never placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you really don't understand who he is. I would call you this morning to see the error of this crowd, to pause, consider in your heart, be honest with yourself, who do I see Jesus as? Am I willing to accept Jesus as he is, as a savior from my sin? Am I willing to admit that I am a sinner? Am I willing to admit that I need a savior and that Jesus is that savior? To place my faith in Christ alone for salvation. Or like the crowd, will you reject him? For those of us this morning who are in Christ, those who have placed our faith in Christ, who are trusting in him as a savior. I think there's a challenge for us to pause and to reevaluate. It's easy, is it not? To get sidetracked. It's easy to see Jesus through the lens of our circumstances and our problems and who we want him to be, and then we get frustrated when he doesn't meet the needs that we think he needs to meet, rather than realizing that God has given us all that we need in Christ, that we are fully equipped. If you're frustrated this morning in your Christian life, maybe you need to pause and to realize what God has given you in Christ. You are fully equipped. You have all that you need. In the same instance, I think there's a challenge for us this morning to go and to tell. As those who have seen what Jesus has done, who have experienced his salvation, we must go and tell. 